Jerry, it is nice to do the wheelhouse from sunny Arizona. It might not quite be warm Arizona, but it's good to be in your office here inside the Peoria Sports Complex. I've spent most of the last three weeks looking out at gray skies, wearing my hoodie, being afraid to walk out the door. But uh, today, you're right. It is sunny. It might not be warm, but I will call it a, a, a nice, cool, brisk spring day, ready for a ball game. Well, you're right. I don't think uh, Ryan Stiles, the Mariners clubby, uh, anticipated so many hoodies being used this early in camp. Uh, but we're not going to complain. It's much colder elsewhere, but the sun is out today, which is a good thing. We are taping this uh, on Wednesday in advance of the Mariners game. And Goodyear against the Indians. And uh, Jerry, episode 12 right here of the wheelhouse. And we've got a lot of spring training things to talk about. Uh, seen some really good pitching so far. A reminder first that you can always subscribe to this on iTunes. And for the Android users out there, you can always subscribe on TuneIn. Uh, but Jerry, first of all, let's, let's dive right into the pitching early on here in camp. And a guy that a lot of people have their eyes on for good reason, uh, Marco Gonzalez. Man, in his Cactus League debut, he looked fantastic. What did you make of Marco? I thought he's great. And uh, as you said, there are a lot of eyes on Marco. I think Marco knows that. The thing that really fired me up about his outing was the first, the command of his pitches I thought was excellent, particularly in the first of the two innings. Got himself in a little bit of trouble in the second inning with the, when the command faltered to the first hitter. He just got a little bit too fine and then really stood up. And, and when he walked off that mound, you know, his head was high, his chest was out, and you could, you could tell that he felt good about himself and about his day. It, we saw the cutter come out, and that's the first time since 2015 that, that Marcos felt comfortable throwing that pitch. It made a huge difference. Uh, he was able to keep the ball in on the right-hand hitters, really crowd them. Uh, it's, it probably is what caused the, the walk, which I think was you know inconsequential walk, to, to Matt Kemp in, the, in hindsight. But carving him up with that cutter inside, it's what allowed him to free up the use of his changeup. I thought his changeup was excellent, particularly the sequence in which he used it to Justin Turner who he ended up striking out. And as I said to uh, you know Andrew Friedman and Farhan Zaidi were upstairs, and I, I walked in and sat down with them mid-game, and we, and we just chatted for a couple innings, and I, I said, your B lineup is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, Marco got to see the real guys. Yeah. You know, guys like Justin Turner and Matt Kemp and Corey Seager. And it, it, was, it was a good lineup for him to face and on a, on a day where I think he needed to show up, and he really showed up, so I'm proud of him. I think it's worth diving into a little bit more. You mentioned the cutter. So this obviously for Marco, his first full season after Tommy John. And he's referenced how excited he is to be able to utilize that pitch more. What is it about Tommy John and the cutter that in the immediate months of your return after that operation, the cutter is not a pitch that most people like to see you throw? Well, if, if, you, if you take your own hand, the, the, any person listening to the radio show, if you take your hand, hold your fingers together, and then rotate your fingers in, so rotate your, your two fingers, your pointer finger and your middle finger in toward your body. And the first thing that happens is your forearm just tenses up. And if you're coming back from a surgery to repair the elbow, which inevitably is that, that kind of that flexor area, the, the tendon in and around your elbow, it, it affects your forearm. And if coming back from the surgery, you're constantly putting that, that tension on your, your forearm, it's not a comfortable feeling. So you need to gain confidence in the fact that the surgery was successful, that the tendons have been repaired, and then you can let it rip. And, and so far in camp, he's letting it rip. I mean, it's not a soft cutter either. He's throwing that cutter 86 to 88 miles an hour, and it's coming off a fastball that's roughly 90-92. And that is a, that's a really nice combination that works. I, the you know, velocities aside, the combination of pitches work. 
One looks like a straight fastball and the other looks like a straight fastball until the last minute. And that's, that's the effect. Same true for a slider? The, the slider a little bit different. The, the cutter is actually happening where you're cutting across the ball. The slider, you're actually pulling down on the ball. So in, in that instance, again, you can, you can pull down on the ball with your fingers together like that, and it's not the same tension on the inside of your form. We'll call it the, the uh, what, what do they call it, the, the, the medial lateral form? I, it's yeah. absolutely what they call it. Yes. yes. <laughs> so the medial, the medial forearm, as you, what you're coming back from Tommy John, that's the area that most guys are going to have more sensitivity. You know, uh, Marco has had no problem pronating the ball, that changeup where he pronates and gets inside the ball and creates the, the, the off spin. Uh, similarly with his fastball, staying behind it, no problem. The, the last inclusion was that, that cutter. And, and it, we were very encouraged by how it looked the first day. So I'm in, the, I'm in the clubhouse the other day, and Dan Altavilla and James Pazos are locker mates. And both those guys are on my list, right? Like, I need to get interviews. I want to talk to both these guys early in camp, see how things are going. And I walk up to him and I've come to the point, I know both those guys well enough by now that I'm just, I'm so overly honest with both of them. I just, I go, hey guys, I need to talk to one of you. Who's want, who wants to do it, right? Who, who's got the time? Who wants me? Who, who wants, wants yeah, a piece who, of who, me? Who wants a piece of Goldsmith? And Pazos with the most glorious mustache in all of Arizona, right? Says, well, I, you know, I actually, I have to go to, I got to go lift. I got to the weight room. And I, I look at Dan, I go, well, you definitely don't have to lift. So are you available? <laughs> Dan already lifted Pazos. And put exactly. Him yeah. Dan's been lifting uh, since he woke up at 2 o'clock in the morning. Uh, so all of this to say, man, Dan looks fantastic so far in camp. What have you seen from Dan Altavilla? Well, you know, Dan, first of all, when he came in for his second outing uh, against the Cubs over in Mesa, when you come in with the bases drunk and the game is on the line, you don't care if it's a spring training game or if it's, you know, October. That this is a, it's an opportunity to step in and just put out the fire, and he did a great job. I think in the early going, Dan Altavilla, uh, Edwin Diaz has thrown the ball great. Juan Nicasio was very good. Our bullpen guys have shown up, the, the guys that we need to be guys for the most part. Dan's velocity has been at 90 to 96, and that's wildly encouraging for your first two times out because, in theory, it only starts to move north from there. We've seen a tighter slider. Maybe most importantly from Dan, we've seen command of both pitches that we have just not seen. Really, in his time as a Mariner, we've seen streaks of really strong performance, and we've seen consistently excellent stuff he's now combining that with an air a confidence about him that's that's real he's starting to experiment with different things bodily that you know in his delivery that can that can affect the timing of a hitter Dan's never going to be a, a put a little on take a little off touch and feel pitcher he's just going to overpower you therefore he has to come up with a different way to deceive and I think he's he among many of the guys in our camp are really focusing on that as part of their their development this this spring we just witnessed James Paxson's spring training debut what'd you make of James uh again couldn't be happier with where he is in a lot of ways James Paxton came to to spring training ready to pitch and now where he is physically where he is mentally where he is as a developing leader on our pitching staff are so far ahead of, of where he was just two years ago the, the growth that he's experienced has been phenomenal. I was really happy with his downhill plane yesterday. Again, really happy with the life on his fastball. Not shockingly, you know, there were, there were moments in time where he's trying to find his release point and really get that, that good command down. That'll come in time. But I couldn't be happier with the crispness of this stuff. And, and you know, fingers crossed, his, his good health. That's all, that's all positive right now. 
James is obviously a taller guy, right? Like, what, 6'5 in that neighborhood? I mean, is it possible for a pitcher of his stature to not have good downhill playing, even though you would think inevitably, well, this guy has to, right, just based on just his sure makeup? You would think so, but no. Now, now James, because of his, his physical height and his arm angle, he creates great downhill playing. Shockingly, there are a lot of guys that are in that 6'4", 6'5", range that throw flat fastballs. And, you know, flat fastballs from guys that are 6'5", usually end up around the belly button. <laughs> and that's not good. That's not good. And they end up 400 feet away. That's right. I, I think the you know, uh, uh, alternatively, and I'll bring up maybe the tallest pitcher, well, one of the tallest pitchers in the history of the Mariners. I, 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 I divert to, to Randy Johnson, Chris Young. You know, Chris, I, I watched Chris for many years, and he was he was such a unique guy because Chris's deception was that he's 6'10". Yeah. 6'10", and, and he's throwing on a flat plane where the ball stays on its apex. But because he's 6'10", it's not at the belly button. It's at the chest. So now he's throwing the ball 88, 90 miles an hour in his, in his salad days, and the ball looks like it's 105. And you know, the hitter just can't catch up. You get that the crazy percentage of infield pop-ups and, and swing-throughs on balls where the hitter's walking back to the dugout thinking, I should crush that. So there is, there is a height at which there is, you can be effective without really strong downhill playing. And I think what made Chris Young an all-star in his best years was that he could combine, somehow he could combine that top-of-the-zone carry with the, with the ability to also angle it down, which is, that's, that's really unfair. When, when the pitcher on the mound is standing 13, 14 inches above the hitter, and he's also <laughs> six foot ten. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's, but there are tall pitchers who don't create great playing. Now, Johnny Gomes had the great Chris Young quote, I believe, that said, it looks like he's th- the ball is coming out of the clouds. And I remember during his time with the Mariners, this was a great Kevin Kremen off the air in between innings quote, when he essentially said, my crowd mic is getting worn out by the explosions of bats facing Chris Young, and every fly ball would end up right at the wall. I mean, like he pitched to the Safeco Field dimensions perfectly, and it seemed like, I mean, he got burned a few times, of course, but... It was amazing for such an extreme fly ball pitcher how he knew the measurements of those ballparks to a T. Uh, whether he knew them or not, that's one thing, but it sort of seemed like he did. Uh, he was a good guy to be around. And he's making a comeback. I think he's with the Padres now, right? He is. And I, I, I think Chris Young, well, I don't think, Chris Young's one of the smartest oh players gosh. in the big leagues. Yeah. He, he is truly, he's, he's an awesome guy to spend time with. Uh, we have spent a fair bit of time over the last year with, with Chris. Uh, both first trying to, to establish where his career goes from here, whether he returns to the field, tries to make a comeback, you know, potentially on the mound, or what he's going to do with his career after baseball. Because this is a fascinating guy to spend time around who has the ability to manage so much information, uh, whether it be the hitter on one end, what his approach is as a pitcher, or e- even from an intellectual capacity, things that, that not a lot of players can really bring to the table, myself included. <laughs> he's, a, he, he's, he's a brilliant guy to spend time around, and, and our hope is that there is an association down the road with Chris. Sure. But uh, my guess is, because of the competitor, that his career is far from over. He'll find a way. To, and he will blow up bats if he's throwing 85 just because of the crazy angles that he's able to create. Yeah, I know he's expressed interest in being in the front office someday, so that would seem like a, like a perfect fit. Hey, you know, Scott said something really interesting the other day in his office in this group media session, Jerry, that I'd love to hear you talk about a little bit as well. And that is he made it kind of seem like um, more in times when it was just pitchers and catchers, kind of a group meeting where the idea was 
kind of thrown out there to all the pitchers of doing something to alter the timing of their delivery, which I guess seems like a normal conversation to have. But on the other hand, it kind of seems like guys would have the response of, I mean, I've been doing this my whole life, and this is how I got to the big league, so why am I going to change it? Uh, but we saw Dan Altavilla do that the other day. It seems like a couple of guys as well. Uh, what was kind of the genesis of that conversation and the results you've seen so far as a result? I mean, similar to when we spoke about Dan just a moment ago, uh, this is something that we introduced to our players. Some are already adept at doing it and, and have, and I mean some around the league are adept at doing it. It's something we've seen have great effect with pitchers who've come over from the Far East, you know, pitchers from the MPB, pitchers from the KBO who have these natural hesitations or quirks in their delivery that create deception. At the end of the day, pitching is about it's about your physical stuff, your ability to command your physical stuff, and your ability to deceive the hitter. Those, those are generally the three, you know, I, I guess critical elements of pitching. And, you know, we've got a number of guys who we felt like could benefit from potentially learning to deceive the hitter. We'll call it the Johnny Cueto effect. Yes. You know, it's a, <laughs> the over, shimmy. The shimmy, the <laughs> shake. The, I, it's funny. You go out now and you watch high school or college baseball, particularly high school baseball, and about nine out of every 10 or eight out of every 10 prospects, pitcher prospects that we see are going to have some form of the Johnny Cueto shake. Really? Yeah, it's, it's unbelievable. And I think it, the, the genesis of it is that the, they think it looks cool. So they well, try it. it. Yeah, it just, it, you look like, a, yeah, it's, it's bad. They're right. <laughs> so, you know, they, they, they have fun with it. If you go watch this summer, flip on the Under Armour game, you're going to see some young guys with incredibly good arms who are all shaking like Johnny Cueto. And, and uh, you know, it works. It is effective. There is an element to it that you, where you might overdo it. But, you know, we've, we've introduced it to the guys, hey, try it. Try a little hesitation like you might see in, in, in the, the Far Eastern delivery that we see from so many players that have come over from the MPB. Try the, try the shoulder turn and the, and, and the ball shield that we've seen so effectively help some pitchers who are otherwise ordinary, and they, and they wind up jamming hitters up on a 90-mile-an-hour fastball because the hitter can't see the ball. Try that hesitation. Try the shake. Whatever works for you. We've seen it. It has worked for Dan Altavilla. You know, Dan doesn't really have a changeup. So he throws, he's thrown in the mid-upper 90s with his fastball. He's thrown his slider in, right around the average fastball. Sure. <laughs> I mean, he's going to throw some sliders harder than most people can throw their fastball. And as a result, the hitter really is not deceived. The speed is all the same. So how can Dan add that element of deception? Because it's funny, regardless of the velocity, the hitters at this level – you can shoot it out of a cannon, and they're going to figure out how to time it if they see the, the velocity over and again. And the difference between 98 and 94 isn't big enough to, to create your deception. So Dan's used his body. We've seen it with Chase DeYoung in the early going in camp, and I think that's really helped him. Uh, Marco has it. we'll call it the bull rush. Now, where you've got the hesitation, you've also got the quick pitch. You know, it's something that we saw for years benefit a guy like Latroy Hawkins, who Latroy threw in the mid-90s, and he had a primarily fastball approach, and he was able to create different deception by using different timing in how he went through his delivery. And, you know, Marco's tried that. And there are a number of guys in our camp. Felix naturally does it and has been doing it for years, alters his delivery to create ball shield. 
Some guys are going to pick up on it. Some guys are perfectly fine the way they are. I don't think we need to change James Paxton or, or Eddie Diaz. <laughs> but, the, you know, for the most part, the, the guys on the staff have, oh, I guess, embraced the idea and run with it. And, it, and it's, it's given us some early returns. So how do you know when is the right time to utilize that once or two times that you end up using that in a game? You know, a lot of times, and I know when we were growing up, one thing we were told as pitchers is when, when the, the hitter fouls the ball straight back, not fouls the ball straight back up in the air, you know, 100-foot fly ball in back of him, but fouls the ball straight back off the screen. That's kind of indicative or telling you that he's on your velocity. He's timed your delivery. Now is when you have to do something a little bit different. Uh, there's it, it's it's reading swings. It's it's something we teach, try to teach our scouts. It's something we definitely teach our young catchers, and something that if we're doing our jobs right, our, our young pitchers understand. The older guys get it. That you know that's why Jamie Moyer is able to recreate himself halfway through his career and have a better career throwing 82 than he than he did when he was throwing 92. Because there was an, an iteration of Jamie Moyer that threw 92. I saw it. <laughs> and you know I, I think at the at the end of the day, it's about disrupting timing. And when you see the hitter on that ball fouling it off the screen, now you introduce your, your deception, whatever that is. And you know in the case of Dan Altavilla, he, he can create a hesitation in his delivery. In the case of a Chase DeYoung, he just stopped. He stopped his leg kicked almost like you would see you Darvish. Uh, now, the ball wasn't coming out at 96 with, with uh, on the other end like Darvish was, but he, he was able to create down action on a pitch and create swing and miss. Well, I'm disappointed that the Paxton shimmy will not be something <laughs> of 2018. That would be so beautifully awkward. It would only result in a strike. It would have to. Hopefully it wouldn't result in Paxton uh, being helped off the field. But uh, we'll, we'll save that for the other guys besides James. Hey, you brought up Felix. What happened to your heart when you saw Felix take a line drive off the forearm? Which at the time, in real time, you couldn't tell if it was off the elbow or the forearm exactly. Right. And I, I guess I would answer that question with, by saying, is this before or after my heart stopped? <laughs> uh, it wasn't a great feeling. You sure. know, it wasn't a great feeling. And, and uh, I can say having been hit, a number of times myself on the mound, it, it's not a great feeling. <laughs> and, uh, you know, sitting on the other side when you don't know what's happened or, or what the, the story is until after the, the doctors have had a chance to visit, I, I've said it, I've said it publicly, Felix is critically important to us. It was, uh, it was one of those moments that stops your heart a little bit. But, you know, once, once he walked off the mound and we got some feedback from what was going on with the training staff and the doctors and, and ultimately took not one, not two, but three sets of images to make sure he was in a, in a good place. And I was very encouraged yesterday when he walked in with minimal swelling, the pain was down, and, and, uh, and there were no obvious signs of fracture or break. So, you know, a, a, really, a really scary contusion, which, you know, should not manifest itself in a long layoff, probably miss a start, and we should be back on track. Are you getting the sense from Felix that he is really embracing and enjoying this kind of different pace of spring training that he's going through this year? I, I think Felix is more engaged this spring than he's been in, in any of this is now my third year here with the Mariners. It, it, Felix is more engaged than at any point. It, there's no question in my mind. He looks good physically. Uh, he's real. He's throwing bullpens in February. He's pitched in a game in February. I, there's my, my mind is blown. <laughs> uh, and I told him that I said, I, I did the fact that I've seen you throw a physical pitch in February is a thrill to me. And 
no, we, we're going to build his innings up the right way. Uh, I hate that we're going to have to skip through it and create this kind of disruption in his schedule, but you do what you have to do based on the, the physical realities. I think he looks great. His breaking balls, the spin on particularly with his curveball, look, it's, it's been midseason really since his second bullpen. And uh, I'm very encouraged by the way he's commanding his pitches. Frankly, I thought that the first inning he threw in Mesa was if Felix Hernandez shows up and does that, we're, we're going to be very happy with the outcome. You know, Ron Fairley had this great story that he shared with us years ago in spring training about Whitey Herzog and how Whitey, a Hall of Famer, would say late in the stages of these spring training games, he would say, I need a cocktail pitcher. I need a guy who can end this game fast and get us over to the bar for happy hour. But we've, we've heard from you that you really enjoy the back half of these games, right, to see these minor league kids. Has there been a minor league young player that has uh, really impressed you in one form or another so far, early, early on in spring? I think so. Uh, first, I'll say Michael Koval, only because it, it, it stands out. He did a great job yesterday coming in on a day that wasn't particularly easy <laughs> to pitch. And, uh, and in back of a pitcher who just, who just had a very tough inning and given up a lead. That can spook a young pitcher who's never pitched in those uh, in those circumstances before, and he showed he showed resolve, and I thought he had a really good inning. Uh, Anthony Mashevitz, who threw over in, in surprise yesterday, really strong outing in similar circumstances. I think uh, Evan White has he's he hasn't gotten a hit yet, and and it's not because his at bats haven't been good. I thought he had a great at bat yesterday that resulted in a sacrifice fly. And a sacrifice fly that nearly got down. That's right. right? The, the right fielder made a great play on it, or otherwise, it's, it's probably a double that skips to the wall. Uh, but Evan has played it, gold glove defense. It is very clear that he can pick the ball, that he is. It's, when the bat comes, he will be a fast mover because the rest of his game is very polished and a good athlete. He's really stood out. I, I've really enjoyed the the competition for our our utility position. You know, between Andrew Romine, Taylor Motter, and Gordon Beckham, uh, I don't think they've made too many outs through the course of the spring. I joked around with them that they're on the uh, the Cal Ripken spring training plan. <laughs> they're uh, they're playing God knows how many consecutive innings, but they're piling up the hits and they're doing a really good job of of making us feel good about the depth that we have in, in those areas. Uh, and that has been a standout in the second half of the game. Uh, I think Mike Marjama has, has been a, a standout, both in the batter's box and what he's done behind the plate. Uh, that's that's strong. In addition to feeling good about what we've got defensively with guys like David Freitas and, and Tuffy Ghostwitch. As I know that's an area where we came in where we're fingers crossed a little bit. We've got three relatively inexperienced guys that we're looking to back up Mike Zanino. And right now they're making us feel pretty good about where we are. Hopefully I feel just as strong in about three weeks. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be talking to you then as well, I'm sure. Hey, I know uh, this is a busy time with spring training, but you were a, a part of a, a or went to a, a really cool sounding sports conference. Can you tell us about this and uh, kind of what it was all about, where it was, who involved? This is kind of a next tier stuff. Yeah, you know, it, this is actually my first foray in. I went to the uh, MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference. It was held at the Boston Convention Center, set up uh, by, I guess, co-founded by the general manager of the Houston Rockets, Daryl Morey. And you may remember your best friend. Yeah. Who is now my buddy. (laughs) (laughs) I only say that because he's not lost. They've not lost a game since we visited. Really? Yeah. We're we're apparently the good luck charm for them, but we come here and everything turns to mud. But Daryl, Daryl co-founded this and, and they've done it at Sloan business school for, for quite some time. And, 
And, uh, you know, Joe Boringer, who's on our staff as a special assistant to the general manager, is, a, is an MIT graduate. He has, he has gone to the, to the conference as a speaker on multiple occasions. A couple of our other front office guys have visited in recent years. This year was my turn. Daryl asked me if I would, would come along. I, absolutely, I'd love to. I uh, sat on a panel, a baseball panel that was, um, I guess, mediated by Brian Kenny of MLB Network. And we had uh, Brandon Taubman, who's the director of baseball operation for the Houston Astros, an uh, analyst by trade. We had uh, Patrick Young, who runs a tech company who provides us with the tools to create analytics. And Dusty Baker, your favorite analytical mind in mine. The inventor and, of the high five, Dusty yeah, Baker. Dusty Baker was, I, I have to say, for me, the highlight of, of the, the event was listening to Dusty talk about the way he uses analytics in, as a manager. And, and in such a refreshing way, uh, there's I, I think the he probably doesn't get enough credit for how good he's been as a manager and how many games he's won, uh, and is particularly in the in the analytic circle. But Dusty Baker had a great way of taking the 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 analysis, making it simple, and talking about what was important to him, and then how he used his eye to balance it out. And uh, I do think that there is a balance. Sometimes it's 51-49 in favor of the analytics. Sometimes it's 51-49 in favor of what your eye says. And, and you have to remain balanced to that opinion. I learned a lot. There were, there were, I can't even tell you how many magnificent speakers, subject matters, anything ranging from the commissioner of baseball, Rob Manfred, to Manfred, to the former president of the United States, Barack Obama. It was, it was, and just about everything in between with, with, you know, really impressive, all the mediators were people that you've seen in national media circles. Many of the people talking from Bill James to Dusty Baker to to it was it was a who's who and who created statistical modeling. And uh, and I learned a lot. And, and I think the and it was enjoyable to me to be on a panel that was so diverse and, and really to to be exposed to a group of people in February that I don't normally get exposed to. It was great. Did you plug the wheelhouse during your time on the panel? I, I did not. Oh, Jerry, yeah. this the president. I got wrapped was up there. in the moment. Yeah, I did. No, if I was thinking about crushing. it, I could have. Yeah, this is crushing. I, I could have plugged it. Next but, year? Yeah, I, there's. I'm in. I'm in on next year. I'll sing the song. <laughs> we have to. We have to create a jingle. We have, We definitely do. O'Keefe, come on. Let's get on this. Hey, you know, you bring up Dusty Baker, who you know, you're right. It's like there's no other manager who wins 97 games and gets fired multiple times than Dusty Baker. Right, like go that, figure. Yeah, that's the guy. So back in this was in 2013 when he's with the Reds. I interviewed him for our pregame show in his office at Great American Ballpark, and we were sitting at a round table, much like the one we're at here, that would seat comfortably like four-ish chairs, and it was this see a white table with a huge Reds logo in the middle of it, and you can't help but notice that the entire table is covered with Hall of Fame autographs. Have I told you the story before? No, but I'm digging it. Go ahead. So I'm, we get done with the interview, and I ask Dusty, I say, Dusty, what's going on with this table? And he says, well, any Hall of Famer who comes through the ballpark stops in my office and signs the table, with, complete with HOF in the year, of course. And so I say, well, how, like, how did this start? Right? Who, who has the idea to sign a table? And he said that years and years and years ago, Willie Mays was in his office and was signing Willie Mays' photographs. But as you know, sadly, Willie does not see too well anymore. 
and he was signing one photo after another. And unbeknownst to Willie, he just signed the table, complete with HOF. And through that, I guess on the surface level mistake, this brilliant idea was born, right? And the stories beyond that are fantastic. First of all, the only two people who had signed the table that were not in the Hall of Fame, one, Ken Griffey Jr., who now next needs to go there. It seemed like a no-brainer. Yeah, Yeah, needs to put HOF down, right? And the other was Pete Rose. Now, here's the tricky part, though, right? Like, at the time, Pete wasn't allowed in the ballpark. Wow. Wow. Pete was... Controversy. Yes, exactly. Yes. Pete was outside the ballpark. I just imagine like Pete Rose in his ball cap and his cowboy boots just like standing on the curb of Great American Ballpark. And one of the clubbies got the gator, right? Like the, the four-wheel cart that you can drive all over the place. Puts the t- lifts the table, puts it in the back of the gator, drives it outside of the curb with a sharpie. Pete Rose signs the table and they drive it back inside Dusty's office. And it becomes the most magnificent collectible table in the history of There's nothing of like it. You, of all people, would think would pay anything for that table, I would think. Oh, if, if you can see the, the grin ear to ear on, on the, <laughs> it's pretty cool. the radio right now. It's, it's awesome. Yeah, so I thought that was... Uh, and when I ran into Dusty when he was with the Nationals, I asked him about the table. And he said, yeah, I still got it. It's in my house. But obviously, it's not... It wasn't in D.C. or anything. But it was, it was pretty cool. It was a pretty neat... Probably the, the coolest piece of memorabilia that I have seen in person, like in a big league ballpark outside of whatever. Here's Babe Ruth's bat, right? I mean, this is, it was pretty unique and pretty awesome. I think that there's what I remember most about playing in Coors Field outside of the humiliating beatings we'd occasionally take. <laughs> we, had a, we, had a, we had a group of guys that were all humbled, and, and we, had, we developed a, uh, like a tradition with, uh, with the group down in the bullpen it, we would we would we had a, a room in back of the bullpen where they stored a lot of you know, extra padding for the fence, and diamond drive for the field, you know, d- different different uh, I guess needs that you sure. would, you would arise through the weather, and we would sit back there and watch the game on TV because it was easier to see than than looking through the fence, you know, four hundred feet away. So we we developed a tradition that once you'd gone out. And given up at least three runs in an inning without recording an out, you had to, you had to, you 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 were you were asked to sign one of the bricks on the wall and leave a message for future Rockies bullpen guys. And let's just say that through through the end of the 1990s, there wasn't a single guy that came through that didn't have his own brick. And the messages were just fantastic. And you know it was it was there had to been 50 bricks filled with with different different messages from guys ranging from, you know, please hide the women and children to <laughs> get me out of this, this crazy house. But, uh, you know, it was, it was fun. It was something that brought guys together. And I often thought if, if you had the ability to just take the brick wall out and take it home, it was almost like, the, you know, the, the, the green monster at Fenway sure. when you walk in there. Uh, far less, far less magnificent, but, but <laughs> no less, Somewhat no less depressing. meaningful. Yeah, it was great. I mean, are, do you know? Are, is this still? Like, this hasn't been painted over. This is still as is. No, it has been painted over. I oh. asked the question because as as they transitioned into the we need to we need to recalibrate the way people feel about Coors wow. Field. Uh, <laughs> that kind of, yeah, that was probably the first thing yeah, to go. Right? The ballpark ops people said this needs to go, and they painted over it, and it was it, it, it turned out we we needed some therapeutic. You know, we. Needed needed to get on the couch after after we found out that our wall was painted over <laughs> you know i just envision 
like a young Jerry who gives up, let's say, a run and leaves two runners, okay? And then, like, your bud goes out there, gives up a dinger, and now it's just like you just drop your head and now you got to walk in there and sign the brick as opposed, as opposed to just, like, cheering on your next reliever with such gusto because it will keep you from seeing the brick wall. Uh, but that, that is fantastic. I didn't have to wait at all. This was virtually, all I, I was on the wall almost immediately. It was, you knew what was happening? No brainer. Uh, that is great, man. I had, obviously had no idea. That's terrific. And we have a couple of really good fan questions uh, here today. Uh, first, this is from, uh, speaking of the Rockies, it's uh, almost like you knew what was coming. This is from Derek in Vancouver, B.C. He said uh, he noticed that you and Scott were briefly teammates uh, during your playing careers 2000, member of the Rockies. Uh, did you ever get a chance to be uh, in-game battery mates? And if so, what was that like? And to what degree, if any, has that influenced your current working relationship with Scott? Uh, funny story. Yeah, that was my final year as a player. And, you know, Scott was effectively winding it down. And the, the reason it was my final year as a player is I, I had that year I, I was injured. I had a, a spinal fusion surgery. And that part of the spinal fusion surgery and the the, the – rehab that followed I, I i spent a fair bit of my time back in denver rehabbing with trainers doctors etc and then when i was allowed to go pitch i was i was pitching in colorado springs at our triple a affiliate which was for me not the worst thing in the world because it was it was equal distance from my home as as Coors field and scott having played on that that same team was also on the disabled list at that time and he was on a rehab assignment in Colorado Springs. So we spent the entire time we were rehabbing. I would drive by or he would drive by my house, vice versa, would hop in the car, take the, you know, the 25 minute, 30 minute drive to Colorado Springs. And we talked a lot about we, our baseball philosophies, what, what we're trying to accomplish. We, we weren't talking about, you know, the birds and the bees. We were talking about the, you know, the flowers and the trees. We were talking about how baseball worked. And, and I got to know him a lot. And every inning that I threw during that rehab, I threw to Scott. And, and I got the opportunity to, to share with him coming back, like general thoughts. What are you seeing? And you found out, like in most cases, that the guy who spent a lot of years catching has a really good idea about what's happening in front of him particularly with pitchers and you know we got we got close through that experience we stayed connected through the rest of our careers and and obviously you know you see the result of it here he's uh i think he's done a very good job in keeping this group together because he does see what's in front of him could you tell at that point that he had managerial qualities without question and actually when i I hired scott you know he he retired as a player and immediately went into the Chicago Cubs organization as the roving catching coordinator. And he spent his first year off the field working with the Cubs young catchers. And, and we, we were both in Arizona spring training. I was working for the Red Sox at the time. And, and uh, you know, he'd, we'd go grab dinner a couple times a week, could come over to the house and just sit and talk for a while. And uh, through the course of that time, it, it was pretty clear that he had that kind of aspiration and, and skill set. A year later, I hired him as a scout after I went and and started running the Rockies uh, pro scouting programs. Hired Scott as a scout, and it was was on from there. He moved very quickly. Uh, He was approached not by one, but closer to five major league teams about uh, the potential to be a major league manager. And when he interviewed with us as a major league manager very quietly, that was his fourth interview uh, for a major league managerial position. 
but because he was not a household name, probably not a guy that people were registering with. So I think it was just a matter of time, and, and in my mind, we were fortunate that that, that time landed here. Did you display all the uh, overwhelming nerd qualities that it takes to be a man in your position during those car rides? Did you have the numbers written, already memorized and before fan graphs even knew what was going on? Were you, were you already there, Jerry? Uh, I was actually there and in the process of getting there. And uh, Scott, I remember the very first debate that Scott and I ever got into. And, and we're looking at the traits of a player, you know. And, and I'm walking him through, at the time, I was building a, a, a database of, of player comparison. As and, you were a player, you were building this. You're saying uh, no. This is this in my this is in my first uh, my first two three years okay. in scouting, and uh, you know, and I'm I'm showing Scott the database. We're running through the, the the names, and now we are both close closely removed from from the field and emotionally tied to the players that we're talking about. Sure. So when we bring up players, you know, and and we're trying to categorically place them in a in a, in a and I guess a. a an, a, a value, place a value on that player. This was some a new concept to to really to both of us, but to Scott in particular. Like, how can you do that? You can't put him in that category. He's a different player than the other. I said, I know he's a different player, but categorically, they line up in the same general ballpark. Well, wow, you'd definitely take that guy. I said, yeah, you can get you can get into the weeds and and pick that guy. But if you've got that guy and Kansas City's got this guy, you both have roughly the same guy. You just like your guy better. And, and that was beyond his comprehension, that, that we would be able to separate the players like that. And ultimately, he did it. He loved it. He was a very good evaluator of players. And, you know, he scouted for a grand total of one year before he was offered the opportunity to go run a, a, a player development system in Texas. And, and his career was off. And uh, I, we, we learned a lot together through those times. Sometimes I, I drove him crazy by, with the barrage of uh, statistics. <laughs> and, and as a result, I think he paid more attention to it through the, the next decade of his career. That's fascinating. You know, I interviewed Scott Service when he was the director of player development for the Rangers. And I, I thought I was interviewing General Patton when I asked for him to come sit in the dugout with me. I was the double-A broadcaster for the Rangers. And it like, kind of freaked me out that he wore a uniform, Yep. right? He wore a uniform as the guy who oversaw the farm system. And he just looked like so serious and so stern. And it's like, man, I, I, I should talk to this guy. But he... The Foster Grant. Yeah, like, he, I, I yes. was, he had it all. The whip. It's like kind of yeah. like pretty intimidating. And I don't know anything. And he said yes. And by the end of the five minutes, I'm like, oh, this is like the nicest guy in baseball. He was fantastic. So, uh, I reminded, you know, when he got the job, I reminded him of that. And for... For some reason, he didn't remember that interview. I don't. I don't know what the how, deal how was. How could that even be possible? I was a little offended by that, but I don't know. I, I swear it happened. I promise it happened. See, and that's what he had to put down. Obviously, the, the cachet of of uh, tools that he brings to the to the field every day in order to coach players. You know, the the whip on the side of the belt. And I the, think you know, he referenced the, that. the cattle prod hanging on the other side. It's a he had to put him down so that he could sit and. and and so you sit down with the, with the little broadcaster of the Frisco <laughs> Rough Riders. It was very nice of them. Hey, this is a good question, kind of a, kind of a big question, actually, from Jacob in Tacoma. This one concerns situational hitting, Jerry. He says, as a kid growing up and learning the ins and outs of baseball gameplay and strategy, situational hitting, and we're talking things like sack bunts, hit and run, things along those lines, were heavily taught, heavily emphasized to Jacob in Tacoma. And uh, with the emergence of kind of some of the things we're talking about, sabermetrics, some statistical analysis. Jerry, how has situational hitting evolved at the big league level, and how do the Mariners value situational hitting? 
I, we value situational hitting much like the rest of the league does, which is that if you have someone who's naturally adept in their situational hitting skills, they're extremely valuable. They are a dying breed. You know, the, the situational hitter uh, or what we would count as situational hitting uh, qualities are now more relegated toward you know, moving a runner, scoring a runner, the ability to get a ball airborne and sack fly. The direction that you're hitting the ball is more so than playing the small game, you know, small ball game that was maybe more popular in the 60s and 70s, uh, certainly prior to that. I think something you've seen here for us through our first week's week of games in the spring is we're starting to re-engage with that type of play. We've had any, I can't quote the number of sacrifice bunts or moving runners over, but we are teaching that because we have a different element of player with guys like D. Gordon and Gene Segura and Ian Miller and Braden Bishop, the, the guys that can do things when they get the ball on the ground that otherwise really aren't that that common in the game anymore. You don't see a lot of hit and runs anymore in baseball. We don't really believe in, in instituting the hit and run very often for two reasons. One, it takes extraordinary bat control. Uh, Additionally, the, the swing and miss percentage in baseball right now because of the, the new velocity trends make it a wild guess as to whether you're going to be able to make contact and put a ball in play. And it's not because the, the hitters have changed a significant amount. The game has evolved. You know, swing changes, plane changes, exit velocities, pitcher velocities have really resulted in more swing and miss and less tactical baseball. So now a situational at bat is understanding I've got to get the ball airborne here. And if you don't get the ball airborne, you're, you're probably going to wind up sitting back on the bench because you struck out. And and we're willing to deal with that because the game has has you can't fight where the game is. And that's where the game is. So we're just reacting accordingly. That's that's fascinating. Yeah, I, the odds of um, a guy making contact now facing, let's say, Ken Giles, uh, compared to a closer from yesteryear, probably not quite the same. I think that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, you know, not to end on a down note, but uh, I do have a tragedy to share, Jerry. Oh my gosh! Please. Word is that Don Charlie's is going to be closing. Have you heard this? I, I have not heard it, but my wife and I we were uh, we were enjoying a meal. Not too long ago, with let's call it within the last seventy-two hours, with uh, with Mariner legend Kevin Martinez. Well said. The three of us are driving, and uh, we we drove past Don and Charlie's, and it looked like the the outside of the building and the sign, the signage was it was let's call it dilapidated. It looked like no one had really taken care of it in, in quite some time, and and we started talking about the you know the the restaurant, the facility, or. The, it looks like it's sliding a little bit. So I can't say you're shocking me, but I will say this. There was still a full parking lot and all kinds of people standing outside. So, uh, I Including think Bob Uecker. That is a tragedy. <laughs> it, it really is a tragedy because it's, such a, it's, a, it's a landmark in Arizona spring training and, and decades of, of baseball people have, have, I guess, graced the doors. And sure. Yeah, I, I haven't been in a while, but I know I will go back. And, and uh, you know, I, I want the beans. I've got to get the beans. Well, it doesn't, you're right. It does not sound like it's closed in any time soon, soon. But apparently from the article that I read, uh, there is a hotel proposal for that very plot of land. So there could be, and this is, it sounds like a couple of years away, there could be a Don and Charlie's 2.0 in the hotel. Ooh. Okay, so like a compromise. Now right? you're intriguing me. Yeah, yeah. but I don't, it's not going to have the same scope and the vastness of memorabilia as we've talked about on previous podcasts. 
will the, the new Don and Charlie's in said hotel and, and what is a very upscale part of Scotland? For sure. Uh, will said hotel have see-through walls with swimming pools and dancers? Because that is what's going on in the area around Don and Charlie's. I wonder if Don and Charlie's can somehow intermingle the baseball memorabilia, the baseball cards on the table, right. the bats and balls when you walk in the door, and the dancing girls in swimming pools. You know, my, my only request twofold. One, that the charred ribs remain the same. <laughs> and secondly, that, that there is just some family-friendly room Maybe what I just described yeah. is not family friendly. <laughs> I mean, if I if I need to, Jerry, I'll I'll gladly take my charred ribs to go. I'd <laughs> rather keep them there because Kevin's taught me the pecans in the pocket trick, right? So I, I want to be able to utilize that. Can, can you walk me through the pecans in the pocket trick? Yeah. So remember, it was like they, they did the hot fudge sundae, but there are no nuts, and Kremen loves his toasted pecans, and so he would brought a, bring a little zip top bag with toasted pecans. And would basically sneak contraband nuts into Don and Charlie's. And he was the guy on the corner uh, sprinkling nuts on his Sunday out of his pocket. I mean, that's. I have always thought that Kevin Kramer was a nut sprinkler. That's that's basically how it goes down. Uh, And let me just say somehow, you know, Kevin never really struck me as a podcast guy. And yet, the last time that I shared this on the podcast, the following day, by 10 a.m., I had a text from Kremen saying, thanks for getting me in trouble about the nuts. <laughs> Which I, I still contend somebody else listened to it, texted Kremen, and he texted me. I, I just, for some reason, I love Kremen to death. I just don't see him, like, uploading his podcast app first thing in the morning every day. But I could be wrong. So clearly you are wrong. I clearly yeah. I am wrong. That's right. That's right. Well, Jerry, man, this was fun once again. Uh, a reminder that we've got an opening night coming up, March 29th, Safeco Field. Indians will be on town, uh, and man, like just about four weeks away. So I'm sure we'll be doing this again here in Peoria, Jerry. You're busy. Thank you for your time. Oh, it's always a pleasure.